Our reading is from John 14, 22 to 31. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I, I leave with you, and my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told to you now before it happens, so that when it does happen you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Hear the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's um, great to be here with you again today. Um, I have actually known, I was reflecting, I've known Pete since he, Campbell and I lived together in a particularly um, decrepit share house in Brunswick. Um, and it's been good to see how we've each grown and particularly how Campbell's facial hair has grown um, since that time. Uh, for those of you that don't know me or my wife Hannah, um, we worship uh, with, I guess, your sister church, um, St. Jude's in Parkville, just over in Royal Park. And those of you that do know me um, will be aware that I am a high school teacher. I normally teach uh, English and humanities, but being, I guess, younger than a lot of my colleagues and therefore relatively fit, I sometimes get asked to go on outdoor education hikes. I'm one of those unusual people that does actually enjoy hiking and camping. Um, but every now and then when I go on a hike, um, especially um, with, you know, all my um, clothes and food and tent and so on on my back, I forget that it's not just a pleasant um, stroll through the bush. Um, and sometimes you get to a point um, when you've got, you know, a bunch of 14-year-old boys um, crawling behind you um, when you think, this isn't really uh, what I thought I was getting myself in for. I thought I was just taking three days off school. And what I need at those moments is an encouraging uh, colleague to assure me that while this bit of the hike might feel particularly hard, it's not going to last forever. I've got two colleagues that I generally go on these hikes with, and, and one of them is very nice and encouraging, but his body is basically made of titanium. Um, and so when I ask him about this, this point in the hike and, you know, how hard it's going to be, he'll give me an answer that's useful if you're him, The Rock, or Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, if you're the rest of humanity, it's not a particularly helpful answer. And so, so I need to sort of do some interpreting of um, the, the, the feedback he gives me. So if he says to me something like, yeah, look, it's pretty easy, then what that means is it's pretty hard. If he says, look, there's a few challenges, it means be prepared, you will want to give up quite soon. And if he says, yeah, look, it's quite hard, it means turn back now, you will die. Uh, fortunately, I have another colleague who gives slightly more um, useful information. And so if he, he can say things to me like, look, it'll be uphill for a while, um, but then it'll flatten out. And I can prepare myself for that fact. I can know 
I will get to this point when I think my legs are about to fall off, but I can be assured I'm, this is what I knew was going to come and it's going to be okay. See, there is comfort sometimes in being prepared, in knowing what lies ahead of us. But sometimes when we're told ahead of time that something is going to be much harder than we would have expected, it doesn't feel comforting at first. Now, I work at a, a Christian school, and the students at my school, a, a lot aren't Christian, but those that are Christian come from a whole range of different church backgrounds. And something that I pick up from talking to them, and sometimes even from talking to some of my students who are thinking about becoming Christian, is I pick up how different groups prepare people for what Christian life is going to be like. And I wonder how often we'd turn to a passage like John 14 to tell people what the Christian life is going to be like. I wonder if perhaps we should turn to it more often than we do. If you've been um, following this series in John, um, you, you will know that Jesus is preparing his disciples for some troubling times. He's, he's warned them of some things that sound shocking to them. He's told Peter that he will betray Jesus. He's told Judas that he's going to betray Jesus in a, in a more dramatic way. He's told them that he's going to leave them. There's all kinds of distressing things that Jesus is telling his disciples for about. He's told them that they will be tempted, that they will be afraid, and that they will abandon him. But as well as preparing them for what lies ahead, Jesus is also promising them what he's going to do for them. And I think it's essential that we hold both of these two things together. If we just had Jesus preparing them for what lies ahead, this would be quite a discouraging passage. It could almost be like you know, the opening to one of those um, reality TV survival shows when we know ahead of time that probably only a couple of people are going to make it to the end, and that's the whole point. Jesus is warning his disciples, he's warning us that what lies ahead is going to be hard but he's also assuring us of how it's going to end and he's equipping us for what lies ahead. And there's three things that I want to draw out from today's passage. They all begin with a P, so they should be easy for you to remember. Jesus is preparing us for obedience. He's preparing the disciples for the path of obedience. He's promising them his presence and he is providing them with peace, preparing for obedience promising his presence and providing with peace. Let's go through those. But of course, before we look at those, I think we can see, as I've already mentioned, why the disciples would be troubled. I don't know, uh, when he first heard about the Christian life, I, I grew up in a Christian family, so I never sort of had a point in time when I heard of it as a distinct life. But you may have been told things that prepared you for something that was going to be liberating and freeing and encouraging and full of hope, and it is. But what Jesus is preparing his disciples here for is something that we can completely understand them being troubled by. And one of the things I find most troubling about this passage is that actually Jesus is preparing them for a whole lot of things that don't entirely make sense at the time. He's talking about a whole lot of times when he's going to come and go and it's unclear which coming and going he's talking about at any particular time. I certainly have a lot of questions as I read through this bit of John's Gospel and the disciples have 
as many questions as we do. In fact, this passage begins with a question. Let's look at verse 22. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? It's probably quite important that we distinguish this Judas from Judas Iscariot. One commentary I read called him the good Judas. Um, But what we're told here is that this is the Judas that that is going to stick it out to the end. This is the Judas that will go on to be um, an important part of the early church. And we need to look back at last week's passage uh, to actually get the context of Judas's question. Um, back in verse 19, Judas, Jesus has told his disciples, uh, before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Now perhaps Judas is simply confused. Um, why is it that Jesus is going to somehow become invisible to the world, but visible to his disciples? Now on one level there's a, there's a fairly straightforward answer to Judas's question. When Jesus uh, dies and rises from the dead, it's to his followers, it's to his disciples that he will appear. Jesus doesn't appear in his resurrected form to people that don't follow him. But I think there's something more in Judas's question and in Jesus's answer to it that cuts to the heart of what this passage is preparing us for. See, the disciples are actually being prepared for the fact that they will in the years to come, stake their lives on a vision of Jesus that the world has not shared and they will devote their lives to a God that the world does not see or understand. John's Gospel has actually been preparing us for this right from the beginning. Um, Back in John chapter 1, verse 10, it says um, that Jesus, the Word of God, was in the world and the world was made through him but the world did not recognise him. Jesus' arrival into the world has been described right from the start by John as one that the world made by him didn't see or recognise. Actually, uh, although Jesus has walked physically on this earth, as described in John's Gospel, most of the world hasn't seen the reality of this. John's Gospel is full of, of Jesus performing these miraculous signs that point to who he is, and people are continually seeing with their eyes what Jesus has done, but not seeing who he really is. Well, Jesus is saying, now I'm leaving. The world will no longer see me because it didn't believe in me. But you will see me because you believe. And I think this helps us make some sense of Jesus' rather unusual answer to Judas's question. See, seeing Jesus with our eyes isn't enough. Truly seeing who Jesus is leads us to a first point. Jesus is preparing us for the path of obedience. See what Jesus says in answer to Judas's question in verses 22 to 23. If anyone loves me, he says, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey me. Well, if I was Judas, on one hand I'd be thinking, hang on, you haven't answered my question. Why won't Jesus appear to the world? We must obey him. It seems slightly disconnected. But I think there's two points in here that we might miss if we just skimmed over this passage. The first is that truly seeing Jesus for who he is must 
entail obedience. We cannot truly see Jesus, the Holy Son of God, and just be indifferent to him. So perhaps, in a sense then, those who, um, who physically saw Jesus, but didn't obey him, had never really seen him for who he was. But I think there's a second explanation uh, that's, that's actually even more powerful. You see, when Jesus speaks of the disciples seeing him, he's not speaking of a, of a distant appearance, them seeing him off on the horizon. He's not even just speaking about them seeing him face to face when he rises from the dead. See, in these verses, he actually talks about seeing in the sense of intimate union, of Jesus coming and making his home with us. When we see Jesus, we will see him as one living with us, one in, in fact living in us. Now that tells us something, um, when we think about it, slightly shocking. And it's something that I think as we, as we live on this earth, and it's an earth that's full of difficulties and full of brokenness, we may not feel the full reality of this. But Jesus is actually telling us that we, the church, brought into union with him when he made out his home with us, that we are actually the visible presence of God on earth. Um, you, you're going to celebrate communion after um, the sermon today. Well, the first words that we say in the communion service are, we are the body of Christ, his spirit is with us. Paul calls the church the body of Christ, and, and, he, and he also says in, um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that, that we, with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory. He's talking there of, um, of when Moses, in the presence of God, would have his face shining from the presence of God. Paul is saying, you now see him and you reflect him. When the world sees us being obedient to him and made into his home, they see Christ's body. Now many may not acknowledge this, just as many saw Jesus' physical presence on earth and didn't choose to obey him, didn't see it as something they must obey. Many will look at us, at the church, and not see God's work in our midst, and not see that they must follow him. There were those in Jesus' day who claimed to follow the Father, but they didn't hear the Father in Jesus' words. And that's why I think it's important that Jesus says at the end, these are not my words that I'm giving to you, these are the Father's words. He's saying, I speak with the authority of the Father. If you think that you need to obey God, then you need to obey me when you hear my words. Well, we have been transformed by seeing God in Jesus, and now the world can see Jesus in us. It's not going to be an easy path of obedience. If we expect people to see our faces radiating God's glory and instantly fall down on their knees and worship him, we will often be disappointed. But Jesus is telling us we will be the way um, that the world sees God at work in this earth. How can we do this? How can we walk this long um, path of obedience, obeying a God that the world doesn't see? Well, we do this because Jesus doesn't just require obedience of us in his absence. Point number two, Jesus promises us his presence. 
the, the word that Jesus uses uh, to describe his, his Holy Spirit, Pete talked with you about last week. It gets translated often as the, the counsellor or the advocate. It's actually, uh, if you think of the word counsellor not meaning someone that you go to to tell your emotional struggles, but a legal counsellor, then we're getting closer to the meaning of the word. The Greek word means to call someone alongside. It's, it's like a, a legal defence that you call alongside you in court to stand by your side and defend you. Jesus is saying this is what he will send to us. And what does this Holy Spirit do? Well, well, first, he's the ongoing presence of God with his people. This is the way that, that Jesus makes his home with us. Let's look again at verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We'll notice here that Jesus uses the word our and we. This isn't only the Father that he's speaking about. At the very least, it is uh, the Father and the Son. But I'm going to suggest if we look at this whole passage, it's the whole Trinity. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It, it's only two verses later that Jesus, as an ex- expression of God making his home with us, that he tells us of the coming of the Holy Spirit. The counsellor, the advocate, will be the presence of God called alongside us when Jesus' physical presence has left. But what else will this Holy Spirit, this advocate, do? Let's look at verse 26. But the counsellor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. I think a good example of what this means is the life of the Apostle Peter. Peter, back in the Gospels, was always fairly brave. He was pretty gung-ho. He was ready to, to charge into battle, ready with his sword when he felt Jesus needed it. And he was confident that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the first person to declare this openly. But Jesus being the Messiah didn't look like Peter expected. And when Jesus told him that he was going to have to die, that the Messiah would have to suffer, Peter's first response was to tell him off, to say, no, you're wrong, this can't be what happens. And when he finds his Messiah arrested, he denies knowing him and runs away afraid. Things were not as Peter expected them to be. But later, after everything had fallen apart and then Jesus had risen from the dead, we see Peter right at the start of the book of Acts, in chapter 4, speaking to the Jews about Jesus' death, the very thing he said couldn't happen. And he says that Jesus' death was how God fulfills what he'd foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Peter, who who couldn't conceive of a a Messiah, a saviour who would suffer, is now saying that God had predicted it all along. It wasn't only necessary, but it had always been part of the plan. Well, the Holy Spirit's reminded him of what Jesus taught him. Even though he didn't uh, believe it or understand it at the time, the Holy Spirit has brought it to his mind when Jesus has left and given him the ability now to speak those words. 
at a bigger picture, the, the very fact that we have the New Testament here today to read is because the Holy Spirit reminded the disciples of Jesus' words. And they wrote them down for us. We, we can believe now because the Holy Spirit has fulfilled what Jesus promised. And when Jesus leaves us his spirit, he provides his followers with peace. Point number three. Let's look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So how's Jesus' peace not like the world's peace? Well, for a start, it isn't the same as freedom from conflict. I had a slightly unusual childhood involving lots of books um, and a large, formidable book I saw on a, a shelf as a young child was a book called War and Peace, which I desperately wanted to read. I've had it on my shelf for a long time and never read it. But I understand that there's war and then there's peace. Um, and so I always understand peace as being the absence of war, the absence of conflict. Well, Jesus is actually essentially preparing his disciples for a war. He's preparing them for a battle. A battle that they will, at various points in time, feel that they are losing. And yet he's saying to them, my peace I give to you. see, peace that, that God gives is not freedom from trouble. It's a peace that can sustain us in the midst of trouble. The peace that God gives is such that we cannot let our hearts be troubled even when our lives are full of trouble. And part of this peace comes from the knowledge that we can have that Jesus is abundantly greater than all the threats that are posed around us. Later in, in this section of, of John's Gospel, Jesus is going to tell his disciples he has overcome the world. And in, in John's first letter to the church, in 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 4, we read this, You, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome them, that's all the, the forces that are opposed to them, because the one who is in you, the one who has come and made his home in you, is greater than the one who is in the world. You see, John, again, has remembered what Jesus has told him. The Spirit has reminded him of, of these words that Jesus gave him, and he has now given them to us to encourage us. Jesus is warning the disciples that opposition is, is guaranteed. Opposition will come. But he's telling them that he will do everything to defeat that opposition. In fact, Jesus' promise of peace is not one that he gives in spite of his absence. It's not a matter of saying, I will leave you, but don't worry, because I'll give you my peace to make up for it. He's actually telling us that he will provide his peace for us through his absence. Now that might sound unusual, but let's think about what Jesus is accomplishing by going away. First of all, Jesus is going to defeat death. In dying on the cross and rising again, he is going to defeat what Paul describes as the final enemy. The, the final thing that can destroy us, Jesus is going to destroy in the very act of, of leaving them. But amazingly, it doesn't actually stop there. 
We also know from the start of, of John 14 that Jesus is going to prepare a place for his followers in his father's house. This guarantees us our eternal home. It's a home that begins now with the spirit dwelling in us and it's a home that will be fully realised when we dwell with God for eternity. And in leaving us, he is leaving us what we need for now. The Holy Spirit, the Advocate. The disciples are not worse off for Jesus leaving. Amazingly, they are better off. We are better off. But the best is yet to come. Look with me at verse 28. You have heard me saying, I am going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Where Jesus is going, he tells us, is to be with the Father. And he makes the the slightly unusual statement that the Father is greater than he is. Now, this is a, a complex topic, and people far smarter than I have written whole books on it. In one sense, Jesus and the Father are definitely one, but also we're told here that the Father is greater than the Son. But at a simple level... Well, Jesus has to be great in order for the Father to listen to him. Jesus' word is going to be insignificant if he isn't God himself. But the fact that the Father is greater than Jesus tells us how much more can Jesus accomplish for us in his Father's presence. When our great Saviour Jesus intercedes for us with our even greater Father God, how much more will God accomplish for us? We also know that in going to be in the Father's presence, Jesus is preparing a home for us. And amazingly, that's actually a home that that he describes preparing for us immediately after he's warned the disciples of their failure. Jesus isn't saying to them, look, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm telling you ahead of time that hard things will come so that you don't stuff up and then you'll be able to be in my presence. First he says, you will stuff up. And then he says, I'm preparing a home for you. In going to intercede for us with his father, he is guaranteeing that as much as we are going to fail like Peter has failed, that our home with him is sure. You see, in, in, G- in all of this, Jesus shows that we can have absolute peace because he is in absolute control. And I think that the biggest way that he expresses this to us is the fact that he has told all of this to us beforehand. Think of the difference it makes when you go into an unfamiliar situation and you're told by an expert, it's okay. Anything that goes wrong is only to be expected. Think of a time perhaps when you start a new medical treatment and a doctor says to you, look, you might experience these side effects, but it's okay, it's nothing to worry about. How different is that to you taking the medication, experiencing some random side effects, wondering if they're a problem or not, calling up the doctor and the doctor saying, really, I've never heard of that happening before. Well, don't worry, I'm sure it'll be fine, it'll work out, we'll think of something. Jesus is showing his disciples that he knows ahead of time everything that's going to happen and he, it has no hold on them because it has no hold on him. In fact, in in verse 29, Jesus tells us that he's telling them these things before they happen so that when it does happen, you will believe. Well, what could he mean by this? 
Well, think of Jesus' followers the day after he dies. Think of how despairing they are. Think of all of them fleeing from him, unable to stay with him. Think of the disciples on the road to Emmaus encountering Jesus and saying, well, we thought that he was going to be the one that was going to save us. They're not believing his words then. But then, when we look at what happened to the church after Jesus' resurrection and after Jesus goes to be with the Father, we see all kinds of little and big signs that they are starting to remember what Jesus had told them, and they're starting to understand the whole picture of what he was doing. In fact, earlier in John's Gospel, we get a a little editorial comment from John that tells us exactly this thing is going to happen. Um, Back in John chapter 2, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees for a sign that he is the Messiah. And he says this to them. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Everyone's confused. The Pharisees take offence. The disciples take a moment to scratch their heads. But then in verse 22, John says, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Not only, as we've seen before, does the Spirit remind them of what Jesus had said, but as they see the big picture of Jesus' plan being fulfilled, just like he said it would, they can believe that he was in control all along. And here in John 14, we see Jesus' power expressed in the fact that he knows exactly when his opposition is coming. I'm not an expert on military history, but as a history teacher, I sometimes have to pretend that I am. And and I know that um, a lot of the great military conflicts of the past have come down to who was best prepared for the attack, who knew when it was going to come and was prepared for it. Well, Jesus knows that his enemy is coming. He knows exactly when his enemy will come. And he tells us in verse 30, the prince of this world is coming and he knows of the physical and spiritual battle that we fought the very next day on Good Friday. He, he even knows that on Easter Saturday, it's going to feel to everyone like that battle has been lost. But he can say ahead of time, he has no hold on me. In fact, he can see that his death isn't just going to be you know, a brief victory that Satan has before Jesus gets the upper ground. No, Jesus' death too is part of the plan. Jesus' death is part of his victory. Look look at verse 31. The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. may not stand out to you as, as significant words. But we're told that Jesus is going to the cross in an act of obedience to the Father, and that's the very obedience that we were called to at the start of our passage. We're also told that Jesus himself cries out this very night to God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Let this this torture set before me not happen. Yet not my will, but yours. You see, Jesus' obedience is an obedience that trusts An obedience that knows that the Father has it all under control. It's an obedience that means he is willing to face the death that he knows is going to come because he knows how it will end. Well, what's Jesus' final word to us in this passage? 
It's a word for us to participate. Come now, let us leave. It's a bit unusual that Jesus says these words here because if you know the rest of this bit of John's Gospel, he's going to talk for another couple of chapters. He's, he's not leaving. Um, but it's as if he's saying, well, given everything I've said to you, will you join me? Will you participate? Will you step out into the death that you know is about to come for me? Well, he knows that they will come out with him. He knows that they will fail him. He knows all of this. Yet he has overcome all these things. He has overcome their fear, their failure, even their death. And this is how we too can join him on this dangerous road of obedience. And this is how we can do so without being afraid. Jesus knows what lies ahead. And his message to us is, do not let your hearts be troubled. The 19th century Christian poet Christina Rossetti, one of my favourite writers, as a, as a young girl, uh, had a copy of what was in her day the, the bestseller of Anglican literature. I don't know what the, the contemporary Anglican bestseller is, but, but in her day she had it. And it was a book called um, The Christian Year by the, the poet John Keeble. The book itself doesn't seem to have influenced her writing very much. It's kind of got little impact on it. But scholars have found her childhood copy of the book. And when they look in the margins, they've seen pictures that have seemingly nothing to do with the poems and everything to do with her own growth as a young Christian. All kinds of images start appearing that then come up later in her poetry that she writes as an adult. And one of the recurring images is of an uphill road. Somehow, as, as a young child, Christina Rossetti was being prepared for the fact that her journey as a Christian wasn't going to be an easy one. It was going to be an uphill road. But when we look at the rest of her life, we see that is exactly what happened. Um, she, she had to break off two engagements because her fiancés didn't share her faith and she remained single to her death. Um, she suffered from mental illness. She suffered from sickness. She died at the age of 64 from breast cancer. But at the age of 31, it's just a year younger than I am, she wrote this amazing poem. It's probably one of my favourites of hers, and it also, I think, captures quite amazingly what Jesus is preparing us for here in John chapter 14. So let me share these words with us to close. Does the road wind uphill all the way? Yes, to the very end. Does the day's journey take the whole long day? From morn to night, my friend. But is there for the night a resting place? A roof for when the slow dark hours begin. But might not the darkness hide it from my face? You cannot miss that inn. Shall I meet other wayfarers at night? those who have gone before. Then must I knock or call when just in sight? They will not leave you standing at the door. Shall I find comfort, travel sore and weak? Of labour you shall find the sum. Will there be beds for me and all who seek? Yes, beds for all who come. Let me pray.
loving Father God, from the beginning to the end, you are in absolute control. You have always known us and you have always known what will happen to those who follow you and you tell us to not let our hearts be troubled. We praise you that you have overcome all things, that in your son Jesus' death you have overcome death. You've overcome our separation from you and you have overcome the world. And so, Lord, wherever we are each at today, whichever part of this uphill journey of faith we are at, whether we feel confident or feel discouraged, may you be very present with us today. May we be assured of what it is to be your body, to be the presence of your Son on this earth. And may you be the strength in our hearts and the grace that enables us to continue until we fully can dwell in our home with you. In Jesus' name, amen.